That's it, but good morning, church. It is very good to see you all this Sunday morning. If you're going to be reading along with us, we will be in St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. And while you're turning there, just some introductory thoughts. Uh, It's Christmas season. You know it's Christmas. Holly's going all up. The radio waves are being flooded by trash songs like Santa Baby and stuff like that, so you know Christmas is here. Um, But have you ever noticed, and I'm sure many of you have experienced this, that even though it's the holiday season, have you ever noticed that everybody will love this time of year? They get happy. They get excited. But the second you start to talk about the object of Christmas, God's gift of love, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin, your conversations with your barista who's making your peppermint latte can go south real fast. You know what I'm talking about? You start bringing up Jesus around Christmas time, people get antsy. They don't like it. They don't like talking about Jesus. Now, this is, this is a conundrum to me, and I'm sure many of you, but and we know the ultimate answer, and we'll get to it, but why is this so? How can this be? How can people claim to be so jolly, to love this time of year? They, they put up holly, they, they say happy holidays and all this stuff, and they wear the Christmas garb and all that, and they... Uh, But they have hatred and anger for the baby in the manger and what he stands for. Why is that? You could put it this way. That's our preaching question for this morning. Why do people hate God's gift of love, Jesus Christ? Simple question. But why do people hate the baby in the manger? They may never say that with their mouth, but it's pretty obvious. Let's explore that. Why do people hate God's gift of love? And we're going to attempt to answer that from St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. A little context. Jesus just finished his 40 days in the wilderness. He was tempted of the devil. And he's coming back in the power of the Holy Spirit to begin his public ministry. If you can and are willing, please stand for the reading of the Gospel of God. The word of the living God says this. And Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues and being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus said, 
Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they, the crowd, heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove Jesus out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Actually, Mac Morgan, would you pray for the reading of God's word? Amen. You may be seated. Church, this scene is powerful, very powerful. Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, announcing to his hometown that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the chosen one. He's publicly telling them this messianic verse is me. And this is good news. God's faithful love to his people is here. The Messiah has finally come in history. He's here to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, to deliver those that are oppressed. And the audience, they marvel at these words. But then the scene takes a quick, dramatic turn, doesn't it? And you could just imagine the conversation around the synagogue, like the church building. Like, wait a second. Isn't this Joseph's boy? The carpenter? And hold on. He, he just said his mission and purpose is to come to the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. And he's saying this is being fulfilled. Is he saying we are those things? And the answer is yes. But in a parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, it says that the crowd took offense at these teachings of Jesus. They took offense at him. And as we know, it says, essentially they, they declared their indignant or angry unbelief. And then Jesus, the Messiah, who just announced all these great things to them, these amazing promises, he responds to their indignant or angry unbelief. He basically says, you know, God's love is going to go to those who are going to receive it, to the least expectant ones, the most unsuspecting ones, to Gentiles. And this is where the scene gets bananas. The crowd literally flips out. They go berserk. It says they were filled with wrath, extreme hatred, so much so, it seems that they actually tried to kill Jesus. I don't know how you can make that any less worse than pushing someone off a cliff. I mean, I'm assuming that they were trying to hurt and kill Jesus when they did that. But why such hatred? Why such enraged passion? Why do they hate God's gift of love to them? The same preaching question. And church, the reason is the answer to our question. It's our main point this morning. People hate God's gift of love, Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, reveals our true condition, and our sinful pride hates that. 
Jesus Christ reveals who we really are, and our sinful pride hates that. For in the passage Jesus just read, the Messiah came to bring good news, came to bring freedom to the poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. And these things are the true spiritual condition for all mankind, including you, including me. And it has been that way ever since the beginning of the garden when Adam and Eve sinned against God and sin and death and darkness entered the creation. So we're going to investigate these claims of the Messiah, how he reveals our condition, how he, the gift of love, Jesus Christ, is the solution. And we really want to close on why we react so violently to this truth. Why did the people not praise God and say, wonderful, my healing is here? Why did they want to kill Jesus? The first claim and the first preaching point Jesus makes is that the Messiah came to bring good news to the poor, which means you and I truly are poor. You and I are poor. And church, when the Bible speaks of poverty, it doesn't always mean lacking money. And just like there is physical death and spiritual death in the Bible, there is a physical poverty and a spiritual poverty. We know this because in passages like Revelation chapter 3, Jesus sends a letter to one of his churches in a place called Laodicea. And he's, listen to his words here. Revelation chapter 3. It's a letter Jesus writes to this church, and he goes, Jesus speaking, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would you that you were either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And guys, this is to a church. Okay, this is to people that supposedly do what we're doing right now. That they get together, they say they're Christian. They would probably be singing songs on a Sunday morning. They probably have someone come up and read scripture out loud and explain it. They would probably break the Lord's bread drink the Lord's cup. They'd probably do all the same things. Baptized converts even. And they were really wealthy. And they were prosperous. Things were good for them. They had a lot of money, it seemed. They had no needs. By all earthly standards, we would look at a church like that and go, wow, they made it. They are a successful church. They had the biggest buildings. They had a lot of money, the best programs. It's sleek. The worship is great. That is the place I want to be. But what does Jesus say about those people? Despite their prosperity and despite their wealth, their true condition, according to Jesus Christ, the head of the church, the king of the church, the one who knows it all, says they are poor, blind, miserable, etc. Because spiritual poverty is to be bankrupt towards the living God. It is to lack the heavenly blessings God has prepared for his people. Blessings that transcend all money, transcend all power, position, status, even time itself. Blessings like faith, hope, love, joy, peace, and the promise of eternal life and the resurrection. Heaven when you die and the world to come belongs to those who are spiritually rich. These are things that people can't steal from you. These are things that don't rust or fade away like your gold and your silver and your clothes and possessions. Your houses get old and tumble down to the ground. These things do not go away. 
They are riches that last for eternity. What the apostles call the inheritance of the saints. And the only cure, though, for spiritual poverty is a spiritual subsidy. Someone paying on your behalf. And that is Jesus Christ. God's gift of love, born in the manger. For it is only by God's gift of love in Jesus Christ that we receive the true riches in this life. Which is why Jesus then gives this apostate church, this church that looked good on the outside, but inwardly were dead. He gives us the same advice. He says in continuing his letter in Revelation 3, he says, I counsel you, because one of Jesus' names is Wonderful Counselor. It's one of those Christmas sayings we have. Jesus talks to this church. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve or medicine to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Church, this gift of love, Jesus Christ, Reveal to this church their true condition, as the Messiah says he does. And then he tells them the solution. He says, receive from me what you really need. Come to me. Think of that absurd statement. Buy gold from me so you can be rich. Well, if they were poor, how are you supposed to buy anything? And the idea of these passages is that Jesus gives the riches that you can't buy. It's the free gift of himself. Come to me and be made rich and clothed and healed. But to those who won't repent and receive God's gift of love, I pose to you today the same question Jesus did his listeners. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And church, what is the answer? Nothing. You can give nothing for your soul. There's no amount of money that'll ever buy your soul. And that's the point. True riches only come through Jesus Christ. And not only did the Messiah come to address and fix our spiritual poverty, he also came to proclaim liberty to the captives, Our second preaching point. The Messiah said he came to bring freedom to the captives, which means you and I are somehow captive, prisoner, or enslaved. So church, just as there's physical and spiritual poverty, there's also physical slavery and spiritual slavery. Physical slavery is the obvious, right? People that are owned by another human being. But here's what God's gift of love says about spiritual slavery. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, 31 to 34, Jesus says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham. You know, we're God's people, right? And we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you then say to us, you will become free? You know, they're not getting what Jesus is handing out to them. So Jesus goes on. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus addressed their true condition. 
all of us are bound by spiritual slavery because everybody sins. You sin, I sin, we all sin. So according to Jesus, we are slaves to this thing called sin. It owns us. It controls us. And a slave does not have freedom to do what they want to do, do they? A slave can only obey their master. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul elaborates on this. He describes what spiritual slavery looks like. See if you can relate to these words. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Romans chapter 7 is this long, constant phrase from Paul where he keeps saying, I have this desire to do good in me, but every time I try to obey God and do good, sin pops up its ugly head and I end up falling short. You ever had those moments when you really wanted to be honest and tell the truth and all of a sudden you just couldn't do it? It just felt like the carpet got pulled out from under you? That's the type of stuff Paul's talking about. There's a desire to do right and all of a sudden you realize, man, I can't obey God. Spiritual slavery sometimes the Bible calls it to be sold under sin, is the inability to fear, love, and obey God to do what's really good. You may indeed do good deeds during the holiday season. You may put money in the uh, Salvation Army guys when they're shaking the bell, and you might do that type of stuff. We might give the angel tree. That's really great things. But you're still going to sin and break God's commandments. Where we go, sin is still present, it seems. And Paul, he knows this, and we just read in Romans, and he continues his perilous plight. He then knows his condition. He goes, when I try to do good, sin is still here. When he, he cries out then, he goes, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's desperate. He's like, I can't do the right thing. It's in front of me, and I can't obey God. What am I going to do? And the answer, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is exactly what Jesus tells the Pharisees in the same scene, the religious experts of his day. He says to them, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son of God sets you free, you will be free indeed. Church, Jesus Christ, God's gift of love, came into the world to set you free from sin and to adopt you into his family as a son and daughter to know him, love him, and glorify him. And this was not some random event, but it was God's plan of love for you and me and all those whom he's calling to be his people. Paul says in Ephesians 1 through 5 about this adoption, becoming the sons and daughters of God, being free from sin, he says, in love God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God's given us a destiny to become the sons and daughters of God if we believe upon the Son of God. But to those who reject God's gift of love, it says that they're going to remain a slave to sin. And Jesus just told us that the slave will not remain in the house because heaven and the world to come are reserved for the sons and daughters of the living God. Meaning, those who are slaves to sin 
will end up in the place where all sin eventually resides, what we call hell or the lake of fire. Church, and not only did the Messiah come to address and fix our spiritual slavery, he also came to recover the sight for the blind. Our third preaching point, Jesus came to give sight to the blind, which means that you and I truly are blind. But just as there's physical and spiritual slavery, there is physical blindness and spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness is a condition of the heart. It's a delusion of the mind. It shows up in many ways in people's lives, but is one that ultimately says, I'm good, I don't need this Jesus stuff. I'm good, I don't really need forgiveness from God. And according to Scripture, every human being has this same heart set, this idea that they don't really need to be forgiven, they don't really need Jesus. In Romans 1, Paul the Apostle says, For although mankind knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Church, it's this spiritual blindness that the Son of God was born to address and to heal. And to this end, Jesus did a special miracle for it. In John's Gospel, chapter 9, Jesus does a famous sign, a specific miracle to specific, teach a specific lesson. He heals a man born blind. It's never been done before. And there's a whole event where he heals this man born blind, but it ends with these words of Jesus. The whole event ends like this. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees, the religious experts of the day, they were near him, heard Jesus say these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt or your sin remains. The Pharisees, the religious experts of Jesus' days, those who claim to know what's what with God, uh, they had no real understanding of the love of God. They didn't understand his mercy, his compassion, his kindness. They didn't really know the Lord. They didn't understand his justice. They didn't understand the Messiah. And these are the guys that ended up having Jesus crucified. But, they, but to their mind, they understood what it meant to live the life that was pleasing to God. But Jesus made it very clear to them, you say you see, meaning you understand these things, but in reality, you're, you're blind. And they killed the Messiah because of it. Church, Jesus Christ, God's gift of love, came into the world so that everyone can clearly see who they really are. Sinful people, and to understand their great need, the forgiveness of their sins. But with that comes a warning from Jesus to willfully reject the Bible and its testimony of the Son of God and his mercy is to enter what we would call the dangerous territory of a hard heart. The longer you sit under the preaching of God and you willfully say, I don't want that, I don't need that, you become more and more blind, according to Jesus. Because you, you claim to that you understand life, but in reality, you're getting further and further blind, further and further alienated, because you think you're okay. But that's not why the Son of God came into the world. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear the voice of the Son of God, do not harden your hearts, but believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, God's gift of love, and be healed. For the Messiah came to recover sight for the blind.
And finally, not only did the Messiah come to address and fix our spiritual blindness, he also came to deliver those who are oppressed. Our last preaching point, we are oppressed. Church, since the garden, there's always some scheme or power, whether by individuals, corporations, governments, or whole societies that oppose God's righteousness in a way that benefits the oppressor while hurting or marginalizing people under their power or authority. We see it everywhere. It happens all the time. But unlike our previous examples that contrast the physical and spiritual realities, you can be physically blind but spiritually see. You can be physically poor but be spiritually rich. This example combines the both and. This is because spiritual evil, Satan and his demons, work through people. In a similar way, God works through his church, works through people to do good in the world. Satan also works through people. And what I mean is this. People do evil because it's in their sinful hearts to do so, but their evil is guided, encouraged, and channeled by the demonic forces who are leading the lost, those who are not Christian, on an unholy crusade against God. And oftentimes, this ends up being conflict with the church. So what does this look like? Take, for example, imagine when a government creates legislation that affirms sin, which in turn criminalizes the teaching of the church. This is a very real scenario. Our own country keeps throwing out legislation like this, but it goes to court and it doesn't last. But this type of stuff we're talking about is all across Europe. It's in Canada, much of the Western countries of the world. Things like this. In many countries, it is criminal, it's a hate speech law, to openly criticize LGBTQ stuff, to say it's wrong, immoral, or sinful, and it's considered hate speech. So then, as a consequence, the teaching of the church that these things are wrong, sinful, and people need to be saved becomes a criminal act. The church becomes oppressed. People, real ministers, go to real jail or education camps because of stuff like this. This is a form of oppression. In places like China, it's way worse. You can't have a church that's not controlled by the communist government. It's a real thing. The church is oppressed in much part of the world. In Islamic nations, you can't have, again, they will kill you. They'll send you to jail. They'll confiscate your property. Real oppression exists in the world for the church of Jesus Christ. And when these types of things happen, it's because the people involved in these things, the oppressors, are doing so because their spiritual poverty, their spiritual slavery, and their spiritual blindness makes them willing puppets of the demonic. The church is opposed in this world. Satan is in opposition to what we do. This simple gathering this morning, Satan hates it. He hates that we get together. He hates that we preach the gospel. He hates that we love one another and share our possessions, break the Lord's bread. All of what we're doing in our Christian lives, the enemy of your soul hates it. And this is global phenomenon, and it's been this way since the beginning. But the Messiah... God's gift of love to the church and the people in the world came to deliver those who were oppressed from such evil schemes. You know, we could talk a lot about the spiritual warfare and spiritual battles and all that, but I think what's really important for us today is not so much the day-to-day -day struggle, but
but that God promises that the people of God are going to find ultimate deliverance when the Son of God returns. The scripture says very plainly that even though you and I may be bullied, we may be harassed or even killed for our testimony of Jesus, we have ultimate deliverance. Scripture says that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven or when he comes back with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might receiving their just end. And this includes the devil, all the demonic powers that oppose the church, and all human oppressors. And this is where I'm, the important part, okay? Everyone who is outside of Christ, who has not believed upon this gift of love, who have not trusted in Christ, you are an oppressor. You oppose God and you oppose the church. You may not be actively fighting with your local church. You may not be picketing us outside. You may not be trying to hurt us. But think about this. Those who have not received the forgiveness of sins, who have not entered the kingdom of God, you will always side with the devil against the people of God somehow, some way. And Jesus makes this clear. He says, Jesus Christ himself, the king of glory, says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutrality towards Jesus Christ. You are either in Christ or you are out of Christ. But the Lord God sent his son into the world to free us, to make us his people. And church, as we come to a close... When Jesus announced all these things to his people, when he, when he read this scripture that he came for the poor, he came for the captive, he came for the blind, he came for the oppressed, he says all these things to the people, and then they try to kill him for it, we still got to ask, like, why, would they, why did they get provoked like this? Why was there so much indignant disbelief? Why were they so angry? This is supposed to be good news. Why are they so filled with wrath that they tried to kill God's gift of love? And I think the answer is, if I had to reduce it down, is something like this. Jesus Christ, because he came to save sinful people, forces people to look at themselves the way God does. And our sinful pride hates that. Whenever you come to the reality of Jesus, that soul then has to look at themselves and say, is that me? Do I need these things? Do I need saving? Am I a sinner? And the flesh hates that idea. We don't want to see ourselves as the ugly, sinful people that we really are. We would prefer the delusion that we're good, noble, just. I do good things in this Christmas season. I give to charity. I do all this stuff. Look at me how great I am. I don't have need for this. And don't you be telling me that I am a sinner. Don't you dare tell me that. But the good news ain't good news unless there's the bad news first. And Christmas is about the beginning of the good news. Jesus Christ came to tell us who we are, but not just to expose us, but then to heal those things, to bring true salvation to us. 
So we would either humble ourselves and accept God's gift of love that he gave us on Christmas, or we will continue to fight the living God saying, I don't need you. I don't need what you're peddling me, Christian. I don't need what you're saying, preacher man. I don't need any of that. But it's a lie. Jesus Christ came, as that young child said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus was born to die for the sins of the world. And this is God's greatest gift he could ever give you. True salvation found in his son. So as we come to the time of the altar, if you have never received the Messiah, you are still spiritually poor, spiritually enslaved, spiritually blind, and you're an oppressor. Will you receive salvation today? Will you receive this gift of love and be made whole in Jesus Christ? And to you Christians who have, rejoice. Praise God for that you're free. Praise God that you're a part of the people of God. Praise God you're heaven bound. Christmas should fire us up that the beginning of the gospel story begins on Christmas. It should get us so excited. It should get us fired up to realize that only a couple months away there's Easter. And that's for you. And your name is written in the book of life. You are saved. And the scripture says you've been made whole or complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you celebrate that still, Christian? Or has this Christmas story become comfortable? Has it become old news to you? Pray for zeal. Pray for service and excitement. Because your name's in the book of life and you are free because whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we just ask for your grace. Grace to recognize the truth that the Messiah came to reveal our true condition but also to fix us to heal us, to make us whole, to make us the people of God. And the tragedy of that story is that Jesus' hometown rejected him. May it not be so this morning, Lord. If there's anybody here who does not understand who this Jesus is, what this salvation we're talking about is, I pray that you would give them the grace they need to humble themselves Seek the truth. Seek us. Talk with somebody. And if there's anybody, any Christian this morning who's struggling, Lord, help them remember what they once were. They were these things. But now they are whole and complete in the Son of God. Thank you that you so loved the world that you gave. Write this gift of love on our heart. We pray that in the name of Jesus Christ, you would glorify yourself during this time.